Well, if you want to turn with me into that chapter that we read, Joel chapter 2, and we'll be looking at the whole of this chapter. But before we come to God's word, let's come to our God once more and just ask God's blessing. Father, as we come to you now, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would pour out your spirit upon us all and that you would meet us this morning and that your name may be glorified in, our, in the words we say and in our praises. Lord, help us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder this morning, what do you think your need is? As you perhaps look ahead to the week and what you've got to lined up, the things that you know you have to do, perhaps work or uh, jobs around the house or perhaps things to people to go and visit, uh, I wonder what you consider your greatest need to be. Uh, I hope that we'll all come to the same conclusion, really, uh, uh, about what our greatest need is. And I think ultimately, no matter what we are uh, personally, what, no matter what profession we are, no matter what we do in life, no matter what we go through each week, our greatest need is essentially going to be the same. And we, I'm sure we'll all come to that same conclusion as we go through this uh, uh, chapter you know, of God's Word. So here we have uh, in the book of th this, this man, Joel, uh, he's one person perhaps that we know almost very little about. We know who, what his name is. We know what his father's name is. We know roughly when he was a, a prophet. And he's been referred to uh, once in the New Testament when uh, I think Peter is preaching to, at Pentecost in fact, in, in Acts chapter 2. And uh, it quotes part of the latter part of this particular chapter. But if we go back to actually when he was a prophet, uh, you don't have to turn to it. I will turn to it later on in uh, 2 Chronicles. He was actually a prophet to uh, Judah in the time of the reign of Joash. Now, Joash, you may remember, was a... Well, he started off well. He was a good king to start off with. He was a very young king. He became king at the age of seven. And he had very good influences around him. So he did those things which would bring glory to God. He started rebuilding the temple. He started doing things which were right. He started following, really, in the footsteps of his father, David. But as he got older, as the men who influenced him got older, they, of course, died. And when those influences were gone, it didn't take long for him to actually start to go off the rails a bit and do things which were completely the opposite to what he was doing before. He started ignoring God. He started turning to idolatry. And something that we see throughout the Bible is that when the people of God turn away from God, then bad things start happening to them, don't they? We see that in the book of Judges, in the time of Gideon. You know, with the, the, the people of Israel, they turned against God. They, they gave themselves up to idolatry. And their enemies come, and their enemies overtake them, and their enemies supp suppress the people of God. And not long before uh, Joel wrote this, um, this, this or the, not long before he gave his, his prophecy, we have this awful account of these locusts which come and destroy the land of Judah. And Joel uses this now to 
proclaim the truth of what is actually coming to the people of Judah. So locusts, although they were, I mean, I've never seen one. I don't think we get, any, we get anything like that in this country. But I'm sure you're aware that they can strip fields of green completely bare within hours, perhaps minutes. I mean, I don't know, really know enough about them, but they utterly destroy everything. So these locusts, and it happened year after year after year. They went through the land and they stripped everything, and the land was completely bare. So that's the background to this, to this book, to this prophecy of, of Joel. Now this chapter I want to divide into three sections. Uh, and the sections are pretty much given to us in, in the word of God. Uh, there are three things. There's the day of the Lord, the call of the Lord, and the promise of the Lord. Essentially we're looking at the judgment, repentance, and salvation. So these three headings. So let's look at the first heading then, the day of the Lord. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we read, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. So Joel was saying, call the people together. Joel was warning them of something far greater that was coming. It's the day of the Lord. Okay, you've had these locusts which have destroyed everything. But the day of the Lord is far, far greater. It's, far, it's going to be far, far worse. And there's like nothing before it. A, this greater judgment is coming. And this greater judgment is unstoppable. A judgment that's coming because of the people's sin. I'll just read a couple of verses from 2 Chronicles 24. Uh, you don't have to turn to it. Verse 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada, so this was the man who influenced Joash greatly uh, for the better. So Now after his death came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them and they left the house of the Lord God to their fathers and they served groves and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass so they turned away from God and God sent these locusts to destroy all that they had remember back in the days of of Joseph you know he and when he was in Egypt and there was a great time of famine wasn't there they had those seven years of plenty but they were followed by seven years of famine. And it says, I was just reading this the other day, and it says that you know, there was famine over the whole world. The whole world was affected by this. And I'm not saying that this was the case here, but we can imagine how devastating it would be to have all your crops completely destroyed, to have everything that you've worked so hard for that year gone, laid waste, desolate. In verse 3, it says, A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden. If we remember Eden in Genesis, it was perfect. It was lush. It was green. There, were, there would have been lots of color. There were lots of everything. It was a, a beautiful, fertile land. But then it says, Behind them, a desolate wilderness. 
nothing shall escape them. And nothing did escape these locusts. If we were to look at the life of Lot, we even see, don't we, that there he chose this lovely, green, fertile land. But after he lived there for a number of years and God came to deliver him, what happened? It was utterly destroyed. Gone. Completely. And we can compare that really, I suppose, to our own nation here. Not just Britain, but the West in general. You know, we have turned our back upon God. We have done things which are completely contrary to his laws. And God is judging us. Look at us now. We have thrown away what we, uh, what we once believed in, what we once loved. And we are being judged for it. I think generally, with everything that's going on in the, in the, in the uh, Middle East, generally I suppose we're a, a lot of us would be in support of Israel, but if you go around in the streets of London and other cities, you'll see that actually there's so much support for uh, Palestine. Now, obviously, I know there's Christians on both sides, but it appears that there's so much Islamic support around our nation. It's not just England or not, it's not just Britain, it's America as well, and places like Australia, where Christianity was once, I suppose, a stronghold in the world. But now it's diminishing because we have turned from our God. If we turn to Romans chapter 1, and we see uh, what the Lord has, uh, has allowed. I was going to say what the Lord has done, but no, it's what the Lord has allowed. In verse 24 of chapter 1, it says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changeth the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We exchange the truth for a lie. We care more about our own desires than we do really for the truth, whether those things are right or wrong. You know, we live in an age, don't we, where good is evil and evil is good. Today we could go into the streets and ask many people what they care about more. Do they care more about unborn babies or do they care more about the welfare of cows and sheep perhaps going to slaughter? You know, sometimes I'm ashamed to say that these people are of the same blood. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say that we had sort of the same upbringing but they, people care more about the welfare of farm animals than they do about an unborn baby. So-called vegans will happily have a child torn from their body and, and, and murdered. It's truly horrific, the things that are going on. But it's no different, is it, from the time of Joash. Now, this time here in uh, the book of Joel, we could think, well, this is only affecting the people of God, only affecting the people of Judah. Well, actually, no, it doesn't just affect them, does it? It affects everyone. Everyone is affected. Everyone was affected by these locusts. And everyone will be affected by this day that is coming. You know, we could have this 
a similar disaster now. But it would be nothing compared to the day of the Lord, the day when God will come again and judge the earth. We could think 9-11 was absolutely terrible, and it was. We could think that uh, Palestine going into Israel was absolutely terrible. We could think Russia going into Ukraine was absolutely terrible. And we could think that, well, we may be on the cusp of World War III. And it may sound absolutely terrible, and it is, but it's still nothing compared to the day of the Lord when he comes. For the unbeliever. For the unbeliever on the day of the Lord, when he comes, it's going to be terrible. And it says in here, doesn't it, that that great and terrible day, it will be awful for many people. It's going to be horrific. And something that we, we do, do we, uh, something else that we know about it is, and we're told in Peter, that it's going to come as a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to be. It could be in a few years. It could be next week. It may even be this afternoon, when once, once we've gone home and had our food perhaps, or even before that. We have no idea when this will be coming. In verse 8 we read, Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. Nothing was going to stop, stop it. Nothing was going to stop these locusts as they, as they tore through the land, stripping everything. Nothing was going to stop them in their, in, their, in their job, in their task. And no one could hide. We're told, aren't we, that when the day of the Lord comes, that when the end comes, that people will run, people will hide, people will cry out to the rocks to fall upon them, to hide them. But even if they were covered in the rubble and things like that, they would still not be hidden from the day of judgment. So Joel here is seeking to warn the people, to seeking to terrify the people. Look, we've had these locusts. They have stripped everything. They've taken everything that we have. All our food is gone. But there's something far worse coming. And there is no hope for anyone outside of God. There is only hope in, in Christ. If, we, if I just, you know, t turn back a page to Hosea 13 and verse 4, we read, Yet I am the Lord thy God, from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no saviour beside me. Without God, there is no deliverance for anyone. And that, that's not just referring to the people then, that's for us today. If we are not in Christ, if we are not a Christian, if we are not saved by the grace of God, then we have, then we cannot escape. I was going to say we have no hope, but we do have a hope, and we're going to come on to that in a little while. The wonderful thing about this is that, yes, Joel speaks, speaks to them about this great and terrible day, the day of the Lord. But the wonderful thing is he doesn't just leave it there, does he? He doesn't say there's a great and terrible day coming and then leave them. He tells them about a hope. 
So we've had the day of the Lord. He now speaks to them about the call of the Lord. It's a call to repentance. So this morning, as we think of the day, the weeks ahead, what we've got to do, what people we've got to see, the jobs we've got lined up, what is our greatest need? Well, it's none of those things, really. It's not, we do need help for the day, yes, but our greatest need is salvation. Our greatest need is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a political need, although we feel that, you know, we need someone to be raised up to sort of guide this country in the right direction. It's not a financial need to, hopefully someone would, in the Bank of England, sort out all the interest rates and things like that, and sort out uh, other things. It's not un unemployment, and it's not even the wars in, in Israel and Ukraine. It's our own spiritual need, the need of the gospel, the need of a saviour. So how can sinful man, how can people like you and I, sinners, know a holy God? How can we be made right with God? Verse 12 we read, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Therefore also now. Therefore, because of what's come gone before, because of this warning, because of this great day that's coming, there's the call, isn't there, for us to repent, to turn to the Lord. And we've read in Hosea that he's the only one. He is the only one we can turn to that we may be saved. It doesn't say, turn and these things won't happen. If you turn to the Lord, then judgment won't come. It doesn't say that at all. It says, turn, because judgment is coming. You can flee the wrath to come. He's made a way of escape, and it is the only way of escape. I uh, just want to read a couple of verses from Revelation, Revelation 20, and we read, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A way of escape has been made. And if we reject that, if anyone rejects that, then that is what we will get. We will all be cast into the lake of fire if we reject the way of escape which God has made for us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If we reject the gospel, that is what will be due to us. Matthew 13, verses 49. says, So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Oh, that sounds terrible. That is an awful end for anybody. So surely we are to repent. We are to turn to God as he has made a way for us. But the thing is, it must be genuine. There are many who would cry out, say that they are Christians, who, say, who have perhaps repented, and they do sort of believe, but that's it. They've done it the once, and then they think, they can carry on in their, in their lives. But actually, 
there must be a change. It says here, we've read, haven't we, that there, sh there must be weeping, there must be mourning over our sins, there must be fasting. See, it must be genuine. I know of uh, many people, but I, I had, um, quite a few years ago now, I had a couple of uh, men work for me, they but they both professed to be Christians. And they both said that they were converted at roughly the same time, on the same camp, uh, where a man said to the, a man from, I think, some sort of prison ministry came to speak to them. And uh, at the end of his, his talk, he said, well, you know, if, if anyone wants to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can pray this prayer and, and you'll, be, you'll be saved. So these two boys, they, they put their hands up and they prayed this prayer. And when I spoke to them about it, one of them would say, yeah, uh, this is what happened. I did that and, I, and I'm a Christian. But he's living as he wants to. He's living with a lady. They're not married. They've got a child. They're, he doesn't go to church. He might go to church occasionally when he wants to. There hasn't been a change in his life. But the other boy, he, he once, uh, he then, I asked him about his conversion. And he said, yes, it was all the same, the, the, the same thing. The same thing happened. But he said to me, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure if I really am a Christian. Because I know deep down I still sin every day, but I absolutely hate it. And I say, that, that's it. You know, yes, we still sin, but the change is that we absolutely detest it. We hate it. That is the difference, isn't it, between our old nature and the new. Paul speaks to us about a, a battle that goes on between the old and the new, and our new nature hates the old. But there must be a change. I wonder how often do we actually weep and do we mourn over our sin. I hope that's often. In verse 13 we read that we are to rend our hearts and not our garments. In the New Testament when we uh, see the Lord Jesus Christ put on trial and we see the high priest, they tear their garments, don't they? Well, that was... It didn't really mean much. They did it just to show other people. Just it's, it was a show for other people to see and to think that, oh, they're, they're angry. But actually, if we go back in, into the Old Testament to Psalm 51 and we see what David said in Psalm 51, he said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Our hearts are broken, not our garments. Is your heart broken over your sin this morning? It's a call to everyone. This call of repentance is to all. Verse 15 and 16. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children. It's to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, it doesn't even matter what you've done. This is a call to everybody to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon was once challenged about, about God, really, and he was asked the question, why would he, why would God, if God is love, why would he condemn people to hell? Why would he condemn people to an everlasting punishment? Does that not concern you? 
Well, Charles Spurgeon's reply was, well, that's not what concerns me. What concerns me is how can God take someone like me who is worthy of all that and actually forgive me? That's the amazing thing, isn't it? The fact is it's a call to all. God does not actually condemn anybody to hell. We do that ourselves. If you look, go back to Romans, you know, the things that we do, we, are, we condemn ourselves. God has made, every, made a way of escape for us all. But we condemn ourselves because we reject the message of salvation. The very reason that God has issued this call to all is because God is merciful. And God is, is love. If God wasn't merciful and did not love and care for his people, then there would be, surely there would be no prophets. There would be no one like Joel to warn the people. So it's a call to us all today, young, old, no matter who we are, of every nation and every tongue, we are called to repent. When Paul was preaching at, uh, on Mars Hill, he said those, that, that, fa- that very well-known verse, Acts 17, verse 30, that these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. It's a command for all, isn't it? Now, none of us here can walk out of this door this morning and say, I didn't know. If you've ever read the Bible, you cannot say, when the Lord comes, I'm sorry, I didn't know. No one can plead ignorance. It's there right before you. We are not to reject the message of the gospel. So why should we repent? Well, without Christ, there is no hope. The Lord says, besides me, there is no saviour. There is no saviour beside me in Hosea 13. But again, Joel, he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't say, the day of the Lord is coming. Now repent. He still doesn't leave it there. He actually says that there's a promise. The promise of the Lord. There is salvation for all those who call upon him. And this is what we see throughout the Bible, isn't it? And especially throughout the uh, minor prophets. This similar pattern where the people of Israel or Judah turn from God. The, the, The prophet is sent to tell them to turn back to God. And he always shows love, shows kindness, and restores them. There's always that restoration that we see in verse 18 and 19. Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. He loves, he cares, he provides for his people once again after they turn to him. God would deliver them from their enemies. There is a promise to them. In verse 20, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid. There's a promise, isn't there? A promise of salvation. It's not a call saying that we should repent and we'll see what God will do. He may save you, he may not. It's actually saying, repent. Turn to the Lord and he will save you. It is a promise. Now we can try and deal with our own sin, and I'm sure we all have, many times. We can try and deal with that and 
and stop ourselves. We have our besetting sin. Paul has his um, thorn in the flesh, which mercifully we're not told what it is. But we all have that, don't we? We have that thorn in the flesh. That's something which keeps rearing its head and dragging us back down. But the wonderful thing is we call upon the name of the Lord and he does help us. He does deliver us. You know, we can, we can worry about the future. We can worry about the things which are completely, really unknown to us. But it won't help matters, will it? It won't help things. The only thing that we can do which will definitely help everything is to call upon the name of the Lord that we may be saved. In verse 23, he said, we read, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain, and the floors shall be full of wheat, and and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. There's a promise there, isn't there, that if, they, if the people turn to the Lord, then they will, they will have what they need. They, their needs will be met in abundance. And that's true of the believer today. If we turn to the Lord, he will provide for his children. He will provide our natural needs, and he will provide for us spiritually. And he has provided for us spiritually, because we have a home. Not here. We have a home with him in glory. If we were to read... Uh, John chapter 14 Jesus says in my father's house are many mansions you know I I go and prepare a place for you Jesus is preparing an inheritance for us and we can read that as again many times throughout the Bible but you know if you turn to 1 Peter 1 uh, Peter speaks to, to us about the inheritance that we've got coming the inheritance that we are to look forward to so even though we may struggle and go through great difficulty here on earth Let's keep our eyes fixed upon what's beyond this world, what's beyond our lives below. It'll be restored. It appears that they that their land would be once again restored to as it was before, like Eden. Now we know that one day when we leave this earth, when we get to heaven, if you're a believer this morning, then it will be restored. It'll be a, like a restoration that we will be once again, perhaps, like Eden. I don't know if it's going to be exactly like Eden. No one's been to heaven and come back. But it's going to be perfect, isn't it? It's going to be wonderful. There'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow. And that's going to be for all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 32, we read, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now, if that's not a promise, then tell me what that is. It says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Surely that's for you and for me this morning. That if we call upon the name of the Lord, then the Lord has promised to deliver us. Wouldn't it be wonderful perhaps if, if this nation was restored to what it used to be? At one stage, but perhaps not. We could go back further and it could have been a completely idolatrous nation. But 
perhaps even 100 years or 300 years to the Reformation. Wouldn't that be great to have many people, uh, many believers once again in this land? But then how much better will it be actually in heaven? It will be truly glorious. It will be perfection. If you turn the page to chapter 3 and verse 14, it says there are multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Ladies and gentlemen, the day of the Lord is near. And while we are here below, this is the valley of decision. What we do here matters. It will echo for eternity. If we reject the message of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be condemned to an eternity in hell. But if we accept, if we receive this invitation to turn to the Lord, to repent of our sins and to believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will spend an eternity with him in heaven. I wonder what you are doing this morning. Where do you stand this morning? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have you not repented? Are you rejecting this message? If you have not yet done so, I urge you to call upon the name of the Lord that you may be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message in your word. We thank you that your word warns us that one day you will return and that you will judge every people, all people, every nation, every tongue, and that all those who call upon your name will be saved. Father, we pray that all of us here would be numbered among those who have repented or who are repenting and believing in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would save us each here this evening, save our friends, our families. Lord, build up your kingdom here, we pray. Hear us now as we come and ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and for your glory. Amen. Well, our last hymn this morning, it's one of, it's a, I love this hymn really, it's speaking of the, the love of Christ. Come, let us sing of a wonderful love, tender and true, out of the heart of the Father above, streaming to, to me and to you. Wonderful love dwells in the heart of the Father above. Let's stand and sing 470. Let us sing of a wonderful love, tender and true, out of the heart of the Father above, to me and to you. of the Father above. Jesus the Saviour, this gospel to tell.
Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. 